The following has been recorded at Cairn University. Any reproduction of this recording without the express permission of the university is prohibited. I'm, I'm going to do something that I would tell younger preachers don't ever do in such a brief amount of time. But as I wrestled in prayer about what to share, I feel led to talk about some foundational pillars, the context of Christianity. And... Uh, I have some concerns as I stand before you right now in terms of this moment in history. Uh, the industry phase of Christianity can mess with our heads. Uh, some of us have grown up in Christian homes. My kids grew up in a Christian home. And, uh, and so what, what the, the grand tendency, now hear me on this. I, don't, I want to make a distinction here. The grand tendency is to view your Christianity as a point of reference and not as a context of your life. There's a huge distinction between the two. To view your Christianity as a point of reference and not the context of your life. And that messes with your head, particularly if you're inundated in a Christian context. Interestingly enough, if you're integrated in that context, it can cease to be the context but a point of reference. And you end up bifurcating your life. You end up segmenting your life. But we need to think in terms of who are we and what are we in this world? Who are we and what are we in this world? And that's not a random thing. Many of you have various majors, and thank God for that, and thank God for the emphasis of this school. But the dastardly temptation with your major is to so focus on the professional side of which you're developing the excellence by and through which you need to pursue that, and that's all good, you know, and, and, and all of that stuff. And if you're not careful, your Christianity becomes wallpaper rather than identity. And we've got to be careful with that. So who are we and what are we? And I don't purport to tell you in the next 15 minutes a final statement about that. But I do want to remind us of three grand pillars. And I know what I'm saying is, is terribly sweeping. But three grand pillars by and through which we need to figure out how do we leverage what we're declared to be and what we're declared to do. There's an identity statement given to us over in Matthew chapter 5. Uh, uh, and you've heard this statement. And Jesus says, and I've heard a lot of messages on this statement, and some of the preachers ignore the verb to be there. Uh, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are lights in the world. Interestingly enough, he didn't say you will become salt of the earth. He didn't say you will become lights. Declarative in your identity. To be Christian. To be Christian means that you are that. You are light. I don't want to be a light. That's categorically irrelevant. The nature of your relationship with Christ, you are a light. I don't want to be a preservative. Well, that's categorically irrelevant. He declares you are the salt of the earth. So to be authentically Christian means that this is who you are. And that's important for us to understand because Jesus goes on to say, and making three grand statements here in the book of Matthew, and I'm just going to water ski over these grand statements, these are the things that we have to keep in mind as you live out your Christianity, as you're here in this world, in this global village, you only have a brief moment in history. You only have a brief moment in history. You only have a brief moment in history. 
And any time, God can say, give me back my breath. And so with that, there's an urgency by and through which you need to live your Christianity. You can't mail it in. You can't phone it in. There's an urgency about Christianity. I didn't say reckless. There's an urgent intentionality about your life. And that has to be framed by these three statements or these three things that we need to embrace. Number one, we need to keep in mind the nature of our calling. What have we been called to do? In Matthew chapter 16, Jesus uh, takes his entourage. If you've ever been to the Holy Land, ever been to Israel, uh, you'll understand that Jesus had to go to Caesarea Philippi on purpose to make this statement. Caesarea Philippi was a Jewish, I mean, was a Gentile territory. And he marches up there from, from Galilee to Caesarea Philippi. And there he goes to this place where there, there, there's this idol to the god Pan. And there is human sacrifice. And this idol is a huge rock. And if my chronology is correct, probably around this time, the disciples have been with him for now about maybe close to two years, year and a half to two years. They had seen the miracles. They had seen all the confrontations, this kind of thing. And then Jesus gets them there to this hellhole in Caesarea Philippi, no Jews, Gentile, pagan territory, idol worship. And he asked them this market-sensitive question. He says to them, now when he came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, Matthew 16, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they give them a bunch of answers, and then Peter turns. Jesus says, well, who do you, think, who do you say I am? And Peter turns and says, measure these words here. Sometimes familiarity with the Bible causes us to lose the shocking, searing intent of the author. Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Christos, Koine Greek transliteration for Messiah, the anointed one. Jesus, turning to Peter, said this, Oh, Peter, you really don't have any idea of the implications of what you just said. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. And I say to you that you are Peter. The juxtaposition of the terms here, uh, you, you, are, you, you are Peter, you are Peter, and you're not worthy of the, of, of, of the revelation. It just came out of you are Peter. And upon this rock, grammatically, that I am the Christ. Here's the point. Here's the point. Here's the point. Upon this rock, I will build my church. I will build my church. I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not be able to withstand the aggressive onslaught of the church. You say, Crawford, what has that got to do with context? Well, that's what we've been called to. The nature of Christianity, we've not been called to an institution. We've not been called to a profession primarily. We've not been called to an organization. We've not been called to a system. We've not been called to just inspirational ideology. We've been called to a movement. 
to a movement. And the very nature of Christianity in this world and the very nature of what you're going to do in this world has to do with this, with this mantling the barriers to the kingdom of God. By the way, I, I agree with what uh, Ray, Ray Vandalin, the noted uh, 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 Hebrew scholar, said when Jesus said, uh, and upon this rock I will build my church, he may very well have turned to that big rock that represented the God pan, that pagan God, and said, upon this rock I will build my church. God is sending you, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me, listen to me. God is sending you and he is preparing you during this season in your life to release you out into a culture that is not a friend of grace. But you do not have to be afraid of the secular society in which we live. You don't have to be intimidated by that. That is your mission. You're part of a movement that will dismantle the very stronghold of the devil. And don't prostitute your Christianity by becoming overly associated with the power systems and structures of our time. We're not here to worship the White House or Congress or political systems. We're here to transform them and change them, to impact them for the glory of God. We've been called to a movement. The second thing that we need to keep in mind, not only have we been called to a movement, we've got to keep in mind what does the movement do? And so number two, we've got to be, we've got to be mindful of the nature of our command. How does this movement dismantle the gates of hell? This is seen in what we call the Great Commission. Jesus has died on the cross in our place and for our sin. And uh, the disciples heard crucifixion. They never got completely resurrection. They are dismantled. After Jesus rises from the dead, he puts them back together. And then what an incredible moving scene there in Matthew 28 as he gathers these disciples. Uh, When you read your Bible, grab a hold of the emotional context These followers that had been with him for three, three and a half years. And he says to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. And I just want to make a few observations about the line here. This is what the movement does. This is how you dismantle the darkness. This is how you penetrate the darkness. This is is what it's all about. He says, go therefore... And make disciples of all the nations. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations. The responsibility of every believer, every follower of Jesus Christ, is to make reproducing followers of Jesus Christ. Go, therefore. By the way, uh, the expression go, therefore, has, it could have been translated while or as you are going. While or as you're living your life, while or as you're serving, wherever I place you, that is not the end game. That is the platform. Uh, we have four children. Our youngest daughter, Holly, she and her husband both are physicians. She's a OBGYN. Her husband is a trauma surgeon. But when Holly was a little girl, as she was growing up and, and uh, you know, talk about her dreams and vision and what she wanted to be. And I would say, Holly, sweetheart, uh, your dream to be a doctor is not a big enough dream. So, Dad, what do you mean? No, no, I think the Lord may be calling you to do that. But that's not the end game. That's just a platform. That's the platform. That's a platform that God wants you to use to make disciples. Your life, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, is about making, reproducing followers of Christ. 
Your vision to be a, a lawyer, a doctor, an engineer, uh, you know, a computer scientist, a business person, uh, that, that's just a facilitating platform. That's not the end game. Don't make that some cul-de-sac. That's not who you are. That is what God has given you as a means by and through which to make disciples. So while or as you're living your life, and by the way, that means in the daily concourse of your life, it's not a boarding pass or a visa that's going to set you up to fulfill the Great Commission. It is integrating what he has called you to be about in your daily life, everything about you. And that's the reason why you got to get off this campus. Now, I'm, 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 I'm a fan of Christian schools. My, my, my kids, my, my son's a, an alumni here. I love this school. I love it. I love it, love it, love it, love it. But my word to all of them and the kids in our church who go off to Christian college, I said, I thank God for that. Biblical framework, got it. Worldview, got it. Wonderful, 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 wonderful. But get off that campus as often as you possibly can. And the reason why you need to do that is because if you don't do that, the secondary will become primary. And you'll be more passionate about processes than you will about the mission. Make disciples of all the nations. The Greek word there is ethnos. We get the English translation ethnic from that. Meaning inherent, by the way, Inherent in biblical Christianity, inherent in the mission of God in the world, is a diverse approach to ministry. The vision has to do with the world, not geographic, but peoples. People who are different than we are. And so, as I look at this movement that I'm called to, to be salt and to be light and to give hope, to attack the very stronghold of darkness, how do you do that? It's not just with debate and arguments, the exchange of insights, but it has to do with making disciples, bringing people into dynamic relationship with Jesus. Who's my audience? Anyone that has a pulse? Anyone that has a pulse, people who are different than I am. Because the power is found in the message. Then thirdly and finally, we need to be reminded of, as we think of our Christianity as not being just a point of reference, but our context, why are we here? We have been declared to be. This is not what we come with. Our identity is salt. Our identity is light. And so keep in mind, okay, what, is, what, what, is, what are we called to do? We're part of a movement, not an organization, not an entity, but a movement. What does the movement do? It makes reproducing followers of Jesus, sharing the hope of the gospel and calling people to identify with him. But then also that is, that is to be laden with, number three, compassion. Calling, command, compassion. Compassion. The greatest temptation that you will face in your life, and I face this in mine, always, always, always. For those of us who are task-oriented and maybe a little leadership part in you, you got vision, this kind of thing, the greatest temptation you will always face is to love what you do more than the people for whom you do it. That's the greatest temptation you will always face. 
But you always have to re- you always have to remember. As a follower of Jesus Christ, compassion is not optional. Compassion is a part of, of who we are. Compassion actually is core to the gospel. To identify with Christ means to identify with his heart. There's this great text, and if you've hung around church longer than a couple of months, you've probably heard somebody refer to it over in Matthew chapter 9, the last paragraph there. Uh, Matthew chapter 9 is an amazing text, the scripture. Um, Jesus is, is, is inundated with people need. Uh, if my chronology is correct, this probably falls in the first year or so of his earthly ministry. He is healing people. He's interacting with people. He is confronting religious leaders and the legalists. And, and he's, he's kind of operating, again, like a doctor in the midst of an epidemic. Everybody wants a piece of Jesus. The rejection hasn't come yet. And so everywhere he turns, people are just grabbing on him. It's, it's, it's just unbelievable. He's there. I live in Atlanta, and I fly in out of the airport, and sometimes uh, some very famous people will be there, athletes or whatever, and folks, are, and you'll just see folks just are gravitating toward him and surrounding him. But can you imagine exponentially here? Now, this text comes, and I need to set this up because you, you have to understand that the disciples probably have been doing crowd control, and I don't know if the events here in Matthew 9 take place in one long day. I, I, don't, I don't know. Max Locato wrote a book suggesting that it does. Perhaps it does. I don't, I'm not sure about that. But the, the point being that they're inundated, just inundated. People want Jesus to heal them, do something for them. They're there. And the disciples are probably doing crowd control. You know, this is trying to get some order to this. Maybe they hadn't eaten all day. You know, and I don't mean to sound crude here, but perhaps they had to go to the bathroom and they didn't even have time for a potty break. Then Matthew opening the heart of Jesus and describing it in verse 35, he says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. I think Matthew... Uh, you know, is using a tad bit of hyperbole here. Obviously, he didn't go everywhere, but the point that he's trying to make is that he's in a hurry. He's driven. Well, what, what is he driven by? Well, verse, uh, verse 36 says, when he saw the crowds, or uh, New American Standard Version puts it, when he saw the multitudes, he had or he felt compassion for them. When he saw, he felt. 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 Not when he saw, he analyzed. Not when he saw, he criticized. Not when he saw, he strategized. Not when he saw, he got mad. Be very careful that you do not adopt the tone of some of our national politicians And I think Christians need to be very careful that the combative, com- just sort of, oh, mean-spirited attitudes develop calluses around our hearts. We care more about issues than we do about people. And that is not distinctively Christian. Jesus looks at the crowd. 
doesn't differentiate. And his heart is broken. Why is his heart broken? Well, his heart is broken because as he sees them, they were like they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Although it's not in the middle voice in Greek, the, the idea is that, 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 that he, these people not only sin, they've been sinned against, and sin is a mess. So look at these people. Like sheep without a shepherd is an Old Testament, it's a colloquialism referring to the lack of moral leadership. Look at them. They need hope and they need help. And God is calling you to prepare for the marketplace so that you deliver hope and help. Followers of Jesus are hope givers. Followers of Jesus care about people. Care about their hearts. Care about their destiny. Care about the mess that they're mired in. Care about their afflictions. Be very careful that we do not absorb this sort of a, and sanitize this sort of, I don't know what it is, this, this sort of group think narcissism. We care. We care. So, as so I land a plane here, Jesus gathers disciples together. Okay, Andrew, Bartholomew, James, Philip, you know, come on, you guys. Yeah, I know, I know. It's been a long day. Yeah, we're going to go to mountains and pray tomorrow. We'll chill, okay? But we look at these people. Look at them. Look at them. Would you pray that the Lord of the harvest would raise up harvesters? Would you pray? Would you pray that there will be an army of people who care? We're not just trying to position themselves and massage their careers. That's not a big enough dream to live for, frankly. It's not. Making money is not big enough. It's not. I passed a church in a very affluent section of the, of the country. We got our share of wealth. Trust me. Trust me. Having a lot of zeros does not bring satisfaction to your soul. So as you prepare yourself, keep the end game in mind. Understand that what God has given to you is to be leveraged for his cause and not just to position your career. Did you hear what I just said? What God has given to you is a stewardship. It's a stewardship that is the focus on the movement that we've been dropped into, the fulfillment of the Great Commission, and the expression of the heart and love of God during our moment in history. Father, thank you for your grace and your strength and your mercy and your power. Thank you for each one of these lives here. Lord, uh, there's so much potential in this room. Oh, my goodness.
Father, I pray that you will meet each one where they are. Make this a, a, a wonderful semester, a great year. I pray, God, that they will pursue excellence, not just because they want to do well, but because of what you've invested in them and where you want to take them and what you want to do through them. I pray that even now, Lord, in these years, that they will exercise, oh God, their passion for you, that you'll bring many to Christ through their obedience, Father, that their lives would be the destination at which others can arrive, not because of some spiritual arrogance or pride, but because of surrender to you, Lord, and because of the grace of God. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your goodness and grace. In Jesus' name, amen. Blessings.